Hello and welcome back to the Moses and Methuselah podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis and in this series, Peter Silen and I draw on our many years of working in the financial markets to chew the fat about current topics of interest, whether it's stocks and shares, politics, diplomacy or even books and films into which we sometimes also wander. We hope that you'll find some value in our friendly but often very different perspectives, one continental, one UK centric on the big issues of the day. Good morning, Peter. We last spoke almost exactly a month ago towards the end of May, and we're recording this uh, on June 27th, nearly at the end of the month of June. And uh, well, as we said in the last two podcasts we did, uh, we're looking at a very complicated situation in terms of a lot of different dynamics uh, affecting the way that financial markets are behaving, and indeed the way that uh, governments and policymakers are reacting. Um, but I think we're having a little bit more clarity than we had a month or two ago. Clearly, I would suggest we've moved from a, uh, a situation where everybody was focusing on inflation and the impact of rising bond yields to one where everybody is now focused on what is going to happen to economic growth, whether the kind of medicine is going to actually create a more serious problem for the world economy than we were thinking before. And I think you can see that in a number of ways, but I don't know if you agree with that. But first of all, let me therefore just ask you, well, do you think that we've got a little more clarity about what's going on at the moment or not? Well, good morning, Jonathan. It's very nice to be back online. To answer your question directly, which is a personal question, by the way, because clarity is in the eyes of the beholder. But in my eyes, there is a little bit more clarity going on. I think it's fairly obvious that we're going to have a recession, both in Europe and in the US and beyond, because that's what stock markets are telling us. And they're the ultimate leading indicator. But where we've moved on from last month when we spoke, in terms of where the clarity is, I think there is a little bit more clarity about the outlook for inflation than there was a month ago. You've seen that inflationary expectations are beginning to recede, which is extremely important. And that has been, if you like, acknowledged and given the green light or the other way around by the bond yields, which have stopped going up. So that's a bit of clarity for you. Indeed, I think that's right. And therefore, um, if you like, we're at a kind of interesting juncture now where, if you like, the mood of the market has changed a little bit uh, and they're a bit more confident about where we are. Uh, but it doesn't mean, of course, that we're not facing still a number of possible outcomes, uh, some of which might be binary. So there is still a lot to play for. Let's take them in turn then. Well, let's start with the bond market, which is always where we, we like to start. Uh, as you say, bond yields have kind of steadied. I wouldn't say they've gone down dramatically, but they've steadied. Uh, it depends which country you're looking at, of course. But looking at the US, uh, for example, you can see that the 10-year, what, is about 3.1% now. When we spoke last, it was at 2.75, but it has actually been higher than that, and it's kind of moving around around the 3% level, which um, I guess would be, if it stopped there, that would not be such a, uh, a terrible outcome for in terms of uh, the bond market and uh, in bond investors. Completely right. That's my opinion too. If you look at the last time that bond deals were at these levels, you were in the middle of a raging bull market in shares. So I think the world economy can certainly live with this kind of interest rate environment, as I call it. The next bit of the argument is whether central banks are behind the curve 
Or are they no longer behind the curve and are thinking and discussing amongst themselves whether to take their foot slightly off the accelerating pedal? I don't know the answer to that. I just know that central banks, especially the Fed and the ECB, are getting a lot of flack from commentators and journalists, adding insult to injury by saying that neither Mr. Powell over in the US nor Madame Lagarde here in Europe have the right background to manage their central bank, especially at such an extremely difficult time as this. So there's a lot of flack that they're under. And I think given the circumstances, they're doing what they can. But let's remind ourselves, when interest rates were hovering between, let's take the 10-year yield in the US between 2.75 and 3.25, that wasn't a bad environment. Because in terms of real yields, I know that inflation is lagging and um, inflation expectations are not. But you're still not getting a real return from the bond market, a real return in bond yields. So whilst the next six to 12 months are going to be very revealing, if it is really true that inflation expectations and by extension interest rate expectations have calmed down, then the worst could be behind us. Incidentally, this is a minority view. It's a minority view that the worst might be behind us. I think that is possibly true. I don't know. I think the um well, it is such a fascinating picture because we are entering into what is in some ways, you know, uncharted territory. Uh, we haven't been seen market conditions like this for a long time. And so it's not just central bankers who are struggling to come up with the answers. It's also investors, I think, have taken a bit of time to try and work out what actually uh, the likely uh, effects are going to be. And indeed, you have to go back quite a long way to find any kind of historical precedent for this particular set of conditions that we're facing. And people, a lot of people talk about the 1970s and so on. And that is, in a way, quite useful because it's kind of accentuating the negative, if you like. And we've seen sentiment has got very uh, depressed. Investor sentiment has got very gloomy. And that is another sort of symptom of the fact that the markets are probably poised to at least pause for the moment. Uh, because when you do get such negative sentiment, we've seen that in consumer confidence surveys as well, and CEO surveys, and so on, and PMIs, and so on. We've seen a lot of negativity out there. So uh, it's certainly... Anybody who opens a newspaper or reads something online cannot have avoided the negative headlines around the place. And they're obviously seeing prices rise as well. So I think for all those reasons, I think, you know, if you like, uh, in terms of the wider consciousness, both the market and uh, and consumers, I think people realize that we're in a bad place at the moment. And that in a way, in a paradoxical sort of way, is not so bad. Just before we move on from bonds, though, I wonder what you make of the decision by the Japanese. I mean, the Japanese are still pressing on with... Uh, uh, easing or at least trying to control their bond market. And they're way out of sync now with all the other central banks around the world. Do you think in Japan still a significant uh, player in the world financial markets? Do you think that is uh, sustainable? And if not, uh, what are the consequences going to be? Whether it's sustainable or not is difficult to say because it's a slightly unusual situation. But it's certainly understandable because if they combine being sharply behind the curve with the fact that the yen has come under sustained pressure, which is highly unusual because the yen is normally viewed as a safe haven currency. And if you go back to the global financial crisis, I seem to remember that the yen was 
in a completely different place. But if, if today, if you combine an extraordinarily weak yen with a central bank, which could very possibly be behind the curve on purpose, then the result would be that inflation in Japan goes up, which it hasn't yet, but which is, of course, the aim of the central bank of Japan and has been their aim for decades almost. So it's understandable that they do that rather than puzzling. So let's see if that works. What also stood out was the the fact that the central bank of Switzerland increased their rate of interest at a time when the Swiss franc is, again, extraordinarily strong. So that's a little bit more difficult to understand because there'll come a time when that will be a political problem in Switzerland, as has been before. So there's certainly no coordinated approach by world-leading world central banks like there has been in the past. And so whether this is good or bad remains to be seen. Indeed, it does. I mean, the other thing I might just throw in here in support of your... um earlier observations. It's been very interesting what's been happening to uh, you know commodity prices. We've seen that uh, oil and energy remain elevated. They have weak, come off a little bit. It depends. They're sort of news sensitive. But the metals have really sold off quite significantly over different times, and particularly copper. Dr. Copper, as he's sometimes known, is an indicator, a leading indicator of what's going to happen to the world economy. Uh, Dr. Copper is feeling pretty queasy at the moment as copper's come off quite significantly down about 20%, I think, so far since its peak. So that would also point to this idea that there are still people who hope that we can get what what's so-called soft landing, which is we can eliminate inflation or the central banks can eliminate inflation without pushing us into recession. But I've yet to meet an experienced investor, at least, who, who thinks that that's very likely. In fact, most of them, I think, think it's uh, almost impossible when you've got inflation so far ahead of uh, interest rates as they are at the moment. And the behaviour of Dr. Copper would also suggest that we are approaching a possible recession. Now, how deep or how long, of course, we don't know for sure. But uh, you would agree with that, obviously, as you uh, as you intimated earlier. I would agree with that. And although it's very sad for Main Street if a recession arrives, there is very definitely a difference today between Main Street, which is recession-prone, and Wall Street, which, if there were a recession, would probably mean a bottoming out of the stock market, because stock markets look ahead, as you know. And you would probably have this dichotomy between Wall Street and Main Street. But you pointing to Dr. Copper as the ultimate leading indicator, especially as far as Chinese activity is concerned, I think that I'm concluding now that everything is pointing to a recession, that there will be recession. I don't know when, whether it's at the end of this year or the beginning of next year. But that, that of course, is going to get the central bankers to scratch their heads even more. And as I said earlier, maybe take their foot off the brake a little bit. And lo and behold, you can have a counter-rotation in the stock markets and that the stock markets start to think a little bit more rationally compared to the way they've been behaving in the last few months when absolutely everything, except for a small pocket of the market, got hammered. So that's my message. My message is a dichotomy between Wall Street and Main Street right now. Well, let's come back to the stock market in just a moment. I just want to throw one other thing into the equation, which is 
trying to make sense of what's happening in Ukraine, in the war in Ukraine, which is, a, if you like, is a kind of, some might say it's a wild card in the fact that it's not directly related to the things we're talking about, but it is indirectly very prominently related to them. Uh, and the way the war seems to be going is that it's sort of developing into a uh, something of a slugfest, if I can call it that, uh, down in eastern Ukraine. Obviously, there's a lot of unpredictability about war. We know that. And uh, people got it wrong at the beginning. I think a lot of pundits got it wrong at the beginning. And now they got a bit too carried away when there was talk of Ukraine actually winning the war. So the war is going on. And then ahead of us lies this crucial fact for politicians of what's going to happen in the winter, which is when we're going to see the impact of higher energy prices and higher food prices as well in certain parts of the world uh, as we go into winter when uh, demand for energy will be obviously higher. So if it just carries on and there is, you know, obviously talk about at some point there'll have to be a negotiation that's come back onto the table now. In your thinking, do you have a view on that or do you think this just kind of grinds on for some time and we have to work a way around the issues that it's uh, created? To start with the good news for a change, the good news is that there has been an increase in solidarity amongst the different players. They do speak more with one voice, but I say more. I don't say completely, because they're certainly not speaking completely with one voice. This week, there are some important summit meetings going on. The other bit of good news is that it well, I think it looks likely that the Swedes and the Finns are going to join NATO. Another bit of good news is that two very important countries have been put on the waiting list to join the European Union, which is Ukraine and Moldova, which nobody ever speaks about, but is absolutely crucial in this story. Moldova, its geographic situation and its future. So I think that the West is reacting by and large well. But on the other hand, the bad news is that there's a certain group among these Western countries who don't give the impression that they've actually got the picture, that they really understand that Mr. Putin has morphed from being a world political leader and has now become an international criminal terrorist. And you cannot negotiate with criminal terrorists. You cannot do that. And so you've got the realists who are in the front line, like the Baltic states, the Central European states, who know the Russians very well by bitter experience and who say that the barbarity with which the Russians are prosecuting this war is almost unbelievable unless you see it. And then you have on the other side people like the French and the, unfortunately the Germans who should know better, but they never do know better, who are continuing down the route of appeasement. And until Europe and the West realizes what the Russian agenda is, and I quickly just want to go through this agenda briefly, and you need a map to really appreciate that, it's a two-pronged agenda. The first prong is to establish a land route between Odessa, which is very near Moldova in the south, and Kaliningrad in the North Sea, a land route. And the second point on the agenda is that they also want to create a west-east route in the so-called Eurasian stretch, which runs all the way from Portugal to the Caucasus, going via the Black Sea. Now, this is not me fantasizing. These are expressed aims 
by the Russians. They've expressed it either in speeches or in essays or in writing. This is what they want to do. And as soon as the West realizes the seriousness of this intention, uh, if they don't realize that, they're always going to be behind the curve and appease us. As soon as they do realize it, they can then finally roll up their sleeves and do what is necessary. You mentioned that there's more solidarity, but uh, I mean, I'm just sitting where I sit here on the fringes of Europe, as we now are. It doesn't yet convince me that, that the Germans, for example, are yet, you know, I, I mean, what concerns me is the fact that this winter problem, when it comes along, they may have to actually bite the bullet and accept that they're going to have to do without Russian gas. And that's going to have very severe consequences for their economy and for their people, whether they'll hold firm in the face of that. The French, I think, are slightly different because the French and the Russians kind of historically always had uh, quite an interesting uh, relationship, shall we say, <laughs> both being on either side of the Central European block, if you like. And there have been lots of alliances over time. And I guess that's sort of maybe still in the French psyche. But uh, I suspect that the French will probably get more solid, if you like, with the rest of Europe. But uh, I, w I wouldn't <laughs> be 100% sure about that. But I am still concerned about the Germans because they are still in this bind of having, uh, you know, being basically addicted to uh, Russian gas. And uh, it seems that Mr. Putin is now sort of playing games with that and he's threatening to cut off the supply altogether and so on. So what's your reading of, of where the Germans are now? Your friend, Mr. Schultz, is, uh, has he gone up in your estimation at all in the last uh, few weeks? He's crashed in my <laughs> estimation in the last few weeks, but then he never came from a very high level. I was never particularly fond of him. And there's a very big difference between being a finance minister, a more or less competent finance minister, to then being a competent chancellor. There's a very big difference. And he was a more or less competent finance minister, pursuing austerity policies at a time when that went against the grain of probably the whole of the world. But he's not displaying talents of being a very good chancellor. He's weak. He doesn't seem to be holding the coalition together. And above all, he has a very ambivalent relationship with the Russians, which goes back many decades. Uh, when he used to visit East Germany when he was younger, he was given red carpet treatment by the East German communists. And when that happens, you really have to ask yourself, why does he get red carpet treatment compared with anyone else? You can jump to your own conclusions. His ambivalent attitude, of course, to the Russians was also adopted by his predecessor when she was for years in power. You rightly say, Jonathan, that the Germans are in a different position compared with the British, for example, with regard to their energy requirements. The transition from, or put it this way, the solution to this Putin-induced energy crisis is a very complicated one. And each country has a slightly different position, even within Europe. And then you've got the liquefied natural gas replacement, which has been very slow, and so on. So it's very, very complex. And I'm afraid I can't give you a view as to what the situation will look like in the winter. Meanwhile, I think all we can do is hope that the winter won't be too severe. But it's not a long time between now and the winter. And I think we need to watch literally day by day, week by week, how the Western powers are getting more solidarity together. And you see them trying with all sorts of what are probably only gimmicks. So that's very much a work in progress, unfortunately. 
Yes, and I'm sure that uh, part of Putin's calculation is that the winter is going to really put stresses on the alliance. That was, I think, there from the beginning. And I think that will still remain an issue to be resolved. And of course, we haven't yet mentioned the Italians who have also have a, a problem with the dependency on imported energy and uh, where the government is, uh, how should we say, it's uh, a little unstable. And there are issues of all kinds affecting, you know, not surprisingly, we're seeing the impact on Italian bond deals and so on, which are widening out and and therefore, you know, possibly creating uh, uh, conditions that will be reminiscent of the Eurozone crisis uh, a few years ago. So uh, that's something to watch. But let's come back to the stock market then and try and pull all these strands together, see what that actually means. I mean, you said earlier that the market's behaving, well, essentially you're saying the market's been behaving irrationally, I think is what you're saying, or at least not very rationally. I guess I would say that... um, I mean, what we've seen is we have seen a very big style rotation. We've seen a huge sell-off in anything that is used to be classified as a, as a growth stock. And we've seen a big sell-off in smaller companies. And we've seen valuations coming down quite uh, sharply, obviously, for those worst affected. So perhaps you just expand a little bit on why are you implying that the market has not been behaving rationally so far? The market has not been behaving rationally until recently, until recently, when it started behaving a little bit more uh, rationally, because the combination of an overvalued market, which doubtless it was coming into the end of last year, and a rapidly developing world liquidity squeeze, we're still in the middle of it, by the way, although we might be getting towards the end of it, we could be getting towards the end of it, but we still are in it. But the combination of those two factors meant that there couldn't be any rationality in the stock market. It had to hammer absolutely everything, as we discussed earlier. And you mentioned growth stocks quite rightly. You and I have often in the last two years discussed quality growth stocks as well as growth stocks and value stocks. But the market in its irrationality hammered both growth stocks and quality growth stocks. And I just want to remind ourselves what the difference is between those two categories. Growth stocks are high hope for jam tomorrow. Whereas quality growth stocks is not only a pretty fair certitude rather than hope of jam tomorrow, but these are businesses which are accompanied by jam today and jam yesterday. Whereas growth stocks, it's all in the future. And um, the market in its irrationality was making no difference between those two categories. And they hammered quality growth stocks, which have now, of course, as a result, reached very reasonable prices. And as you see the market beginning to differentiate now between the wheat and the chaff, I think that the level of the market's irrationality has gone down and has normalized a little bit. Well, I hope that's right. I think my take will be slightly different on that. I mean, I think that the fact that the bond yields have stopped going up, I think that's been one of the factors that has stopped this kind of bloodletting, if you like, in, in the growth sector of all kinds. I mean, you're absolutely right to say that it's slightly bizarre that uh, growth stocks and quality growth stocks should both be so badly affected, though. I mean, I would point out that you know, if you look at some of the out-and-out growth trusts, uh, investment trusts that, that I follow regularly, you know, they are, some of them are down 40 or 50% so far since their highs at the end of last year. So they have been punished more, I think, than the kind of stocks that you own. But notwithstanding that, I take that point. So I think, if you like, the first order impact of bond yields not going up and 
you know, uh, expectations perhaps uh, moderating about inflation and and the extent to which interest rates will have to rise uh, has played a part in that. But it still seems to me that the problem really now is that, you know, valuations, I think, did get very high. You can argue whether that was rational in itself. I think we now know quite clearly what was driving all that. There was this huge stimulus coming into the market and uh, a bit of a kind of gung-ho spirit after the end of the pandemic or after the vaccination came in. Uh, and we can see now, I think historically, we'll look back on that and say that was an absolutely crazy period like like uh, some others we've seen before. And a lot of, you know, a lot of money has been lost in, as a result of that. But I think you could also still make an argument, I think I would make an argument, that valuations generally will probably have to come down even further than they are now. I think uh, if you look at the uh, S&P 500, I think it's come down a long way if you believe the earnings, uh, which of course will be affected by a recession if you get one. You know, it's come down to more what, what recently have been more, you know, reasonable levels, 15 times, that sort of thing. But uh, they could easily go go further, I think. And that's uh, my concern is I have to say I'm slightly more concerned than you are. I think about this. I think uh, I still think we haven't seen the uh, the end of this bear market. And I do fear that, um, you know, while stocks like the ones you own will do relatively well from here on, I think, as opposed to, you know, doing slightly worse than some. Uh, I do think that we've got another leg down in this market to come after this current rally runs out of steam. Which leads me, of course, to the question which is on everybody's mind as we come to the end of our podcast. The question being, is this a dead cat bounce? And uh, I'm sure that the next time you and I meet, we will have a little bit more clarity as to whether this is a dead cat bounce. But let me tell you that in my experience, talking to a lot of people at the moment, it is universally assumed that this is a dead cat bounce. And somebody said, the higher the point from which the cat was thrown off the roof, the higher the bounce. And so don't be confused if the bounce continues. Well, you know, I understand that the bounce last week was pretty extreme, but I also know that the previous week you had an absolutely record level of shorts out there, short positions. And I think this is something that you and I need to keep our eyes on very carefully, not only the short positions in the stock market, but also the short positions in the bond market. Because as you know, as well as I do, every, let's say, turn in the market, in whatever market, foreign exchange, bond, share, any market, it begins for technical reasons, like, for example, short covering. And so a lot of people will say, yes, of course, this is a dead cat bounce because it is underpinned by technicals. I say to you, that is very true. But in the past, these technicals have often morphed, if you like, into fundamentals. So whether this is a dead cat bounce or not is something that each investor must decide. But I do think that in the next few weeks, we will know whether the cat is dead or alive. <laughs> yes, well, we may have, uh, if I could say, we may have flogged this cat to death, this, this analogy <laughs> to death. Uh, it is a kind of old-timers phrase, I have to say, the dead cat bounce. But um, uh, it seems to me, I mean, as you know, I, I tend to look quite closely at two things. One is a sort of historical precedence and, and a whole number of reasons which we don't need to go into now. I think that this market is going lower. But having said that, I also look quite closely at the technicals. And uh, you're quite right. The technicals can, you know, the, the whole art of this is to spot what kind of market we're in. And uh, I think the technicals will also tell us something about that. And at the moment, it just tells us that they've been oversold and the markets are coming back. 
but they they'll have to do something quite decisive to shake me out of my conviction that we may have got some more bad news to come but uh, i hope to be proved wrong i always hope to be proved wrong on these kind of things uh, but i'm not yet convinced i am pretty uh, clear that there will be a good rally from here but uh, of some duration um, but I wish I was uh, more confident about the longer term. I noticed, I was listening the other day to a very interesting interview with a, a guy called uh, Stan Druckenmiller. I don't know if you come across him, who used to work for George Soros for many years and now manages a family office. Uh, I thought that was very interesting. I mean, he describes himself as an old curmudgeon now, you know, having to compete with another generation who are completely different in their outlook and experience and so on, uh, which, of course, is true of us too. <laughs> I suppose we're a bit curmudgeonly in a way. But he was saying that, uh, you know, he unfortunately shares my view, or rather I should say I share his view, yeah, rather than presumption saying he's sharing my view. And he was saying, well, he's he doesn't know anything for sure. I mean, we all start with that premise. We don't know anything for sure. But if the market rallies about 15%, he said, he will be very hard pushed not to go short about it again. And uh, because he does expect things to get worse for a whole variety of bigger picture reasons that we don't need to go into, but uh, he might be wrong. So who knows? But uh, for the moment, I'm going to stick to my uh, position as being somewhat more gloomy than you are, Peter, but uh, let's see how it goes. And uh, we'll all find out. It's always in these particular markets where you actually find out, uh, uh, you know, how good you really are, because um, we all know in a bull market, anybody can make money in a bull market. Uh, but uh, these are the ones that really challenge you and test you. And the hedge fund managers in the last few months have had their day in the sun. And so, of course, they're going to continue to badmouth the stock market. Stan Druckenmiller was a great star, but that was 30 years ago. I think he was also responsible for crashing Sterling at the time, do you remember? They said it was George Soros who, who broke Sterling's back, but I think it was Stan as well. And he has had a very difficult time for quite a long time because it hasn't been a hedge fund environment. And so it doesn't surprise me that he says that if the cat bounces 15%, he's going to short it again. I think you'll find that most hedge fund managers say that. So indeed, I agree with Stan that we, we can't tell the future. We'll just have to sit and watch and learn. Indeed. Well, that's what we try to do. And that's why we... Uh... When we talk about these things, we don't really ever come to 100% conviction answers. I am, though, quite a believer in the uh, in what I believe is known as the Kelly rule, which is a sort of poker player's mathematical formula for trying to decide how much money you put on uh, on an outcome, depending on your conviction, your level of conviction. And I think the formula is 2n minus 1. I'm not sure if you've ever come across this, have you, Peter? No. Uh, if you have a, you know, if you have an 80% conviction that one outcome is going to happen, that you should basically bet how much of your bankroll should you bet on it. And the Kelly rule basically says you should bet, you know, two times 80, 160 minus one or minus 100. So you should bet 60% of your, of your money on that outcome. And I have about an 80% conviction this is going to get worse. So I'm not going to go more than 40% into the, you know, long equities, long risk assets uh, camp at this point. But as you say, it might well be wrong. And the good news is that it means that you and I are going to continue having some very interesting discussions in the months ahead, and I very much look forward to those. Indeed. And uh, so it's been a pleasure as always, Peter, and it's good to be able to chronicle our changing thoughts over time, because I think that is what this uh, business is all around. You have to constantly reinterpret and readapt to the latest information and your latest uh, assessment of what other people are thinking as well, which is not uh, not unimportant as well. 
So on that note, we'll uh, look forward to the next call, uh, probably in about a month's time, and we'll uh, hope for uh, better news by then. I look forward to that, and I say thank you very much and all the best, Jonathan. You have been listening to the Moses and Methuselah podcast, hosted by Jonathan Davis and Peter Silen. These podcasts are independently edited and produced. You can subscribe to them on most leading podcast channels or by signing up on the Moneymakers or Eminem podcast website. Please note that these podcasts are provided for information and background only and should not be regarded as constituting professional investment advice.